It's time for another magical episode of BuddyCast. How's everyone doing today? Wonderful. Doing very well. Awesome. First off, I'd like to introduce our guest, Professor D.R. Schreiber, also known as Danny, as his muggle name is performed. And secondly, real quick, I'm going to get this announcement out of the way. I am bringing on a co-host today. You know him. You love him. He's my business partner in crime. Chris Herring. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here, Nick. And a pleasure to meet you, Professor. Yes, absolutely. May I ask you, Professor, let's start out with this question. How did you get into magic in the first place? Oh, it's a, a long, long ago, I'll tell you the tale. Uh, actually, it's very interesting. I, um, not a tale I tell very frequently, but years ago, I think I was probably seven or eight, I saw a magician perform. I was actually at a um, Cub Scout. I was a Cub Scout. Cub mm -hmm. Scout Blue and Gold Banquet um, up here in Portland, Oregon. And, and um, a local magician showed up to do the act. And um, apparently I was very interested because when I got home, my, my mother, who was a school teacher, who did perform magic in her classroom to kind of keep the kids entertained and that kind of thing, she taught me a few tricks at that point. And um, that was kind of my, my, I guess, the first bug that I got. So probably about seven or eight. Then um, we moved to Southern California, where I uh, went to college and high school and worked my way through college at Disneyland and learned. Um, yes, I was there as a ride operator for the Jungle Cruise, the Haunted Mansion, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Canoe Ride, Country Bear Jamboree, Splash Mountain, those kinds of rides while I was there and learned the magic of Disney. And, and um, if you know anything about Disneyland, the rides actually all have a lot of magic tricks, especially Haunted Mansion. Um, incorporated into them, optical illusions and other types of illusions. So that also sparked my interest and also got me a little shit in the performing side, the performance side. And then uh, years later, when we moved back here to Portland, Oregon, um, I picked up the bug again and started learning real magic and started uh, going to some of the local magic clubs and other things like that, where I started meeting a lot of local magicians. And along the way, I met a gentleman um, here named Bob Eaton, who is a magician here in Portland. And after telling my parents, my mom dug through old photographs and found the photograph of me with that magician back when I was seven. And it happened to be Bob E., the same gentleman who I was now friends with from the Magic Club. I had no idea. And she found the photo of when I was seven or eight with Bob Eaton at the time. And um, I went later on and showed Bob. And he was very embarrassed that I was so young and he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> But Bob's still performing. He's actually Bob the Magician, but Bob with one O. He always makes sure everyone knows that. So it's part <laughs> of his little catchphrase. <laughs> Good one. Chris, do you have a question for yeah, our guest? Uh, uh, Professor, do you do you recall? I, I You probably did mention it, but what was your first magic trick that, that really, I mean, really gave you a, a feeling of astonishment? That's what I'm interested in. I, yeah, I mean, of course, my first thing actually I learned was ups and balls. Um, yeah. What my mom taught me um, probably didn't astonish me. <laughs> I, <wouldn't laughs> um, I think, gosh, um, it wasn't actually till much later. I think because um, as I started to learn more about some of the mentalism stuff, yes, and um, that's what actually started to astonish me. Some of those, and um, probably I have to be careful of what I say. I mean, with Chris, I can talk about this, but there's some 
some methods that I learned that I think astonished me more than anything of some of the tools that magicians use. Um, almost not in a positive way, but almost a really, that was it? That's all we did as magicians? That's, that's the trick? And I think it was more of an astonishment of, I can't believe that it wasn't real or it wasn't more than that right. um, for a long time. And that, that was probably my first, I guess I would call that astonishment. Um, but you know, as, 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 as you become an artist and you, a lot of it ends up becoming technique and tools and skills. And so you, I don't know if I would say the astonishment goes away, but right. um, I mean, it kind of does a little bit, it's not an astonishment. Some of it is still, it's a great trick. I love the way it looks. But um, I don't know if I'd say still astonished. Right. It depends on how you find astonished. Right? No, no. You know, if I may, Nick, I, I do have another question. You know, oh I, I do know that feeling of, you know, this when you finally learn the method and it doesn't give you that same astonishment anymore. But what I'm also interested in is when you started going into this different path of the history aspect of, of magic, where did that all come from, if, if you don't mind telling us? No, absolutely. Well, this is an interesting path because obviously when I first started performing, I was doing the traditional magic stuff. I had a rabbit, uh, <laughs> you know, his name was Cadbury at the time. Uh, and so I was doing the traditional, you know, magician act i guess you call it kids magician act my wife was a school teacher so i would uh come to her class and perform and um and teach there and, and do magic and it was pretty much you know business suit and tie kind of type magic and um i i know early on when i was a, a boy my parents took me to places like um boston massachusetts where we follow the freedom trail and um my wife and i later went to Colonial williamsburg we we like to go to things like renaissance fairs and stuff like that and all of those things really sparked my interest in history much later in life. Okay. And um, as I began to study more about magic, of course, everyone learns about Harry Houdini and the history of some of the early effects and magic tricks and some of those early magicians. And those kind of sparked my interest a, a little bit on these you know, little historical connections. So early on, I, when I was in her classroom, I really wanted to put something together um, in my wife's classroom on history. And I know I always, whenever I perform, I always mention something about history of magicians. Usually it was Harry Houdini or something like that. But yeah. um, later on, my wife became interested in a time period called Regency, which is um, Jane Austen time period. And so she yeah. would um, drag me along. I guess I could say, can I say that? I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> asking her. She's like, okay, fine. She would drag me along to their events and to their balls. And, um, and, you know, I actually started to, I really quickly enjoyed it. I mean, it was very, very fun to dress yeah. up in old fashioned clothes and would drink tea and have, you know, all these fun things and reminded me very much of, you know, the Renaissance fairs that we enjoyed going to and um, those reenactment kind of things. And um, I quickly learned that there was magic in the Regency era. And Regency time period wise is about 1790 to about 1820 time period. Yeah. And um, I learned quickly that most magicians, that I met, that I had worked with at pubs and other things, had never even heard of magic in the 18th century. Um, most magicians talked about the ancient Egyptians, and then there's Robert Houdin, and then there's Harry Houdini, and then today. And that's kind of the progression. And there happens to be a few thousand years between the Egyptians and Robert Houdin, and a small slice in that period is, a, is that time period of Regency. So that's where my real interest was. I started to study it started to dig around 
uh, in fact, what really sparked my imagination, I was reading the children's book to my little boy, um, oh, probably was two or three maybe at the time. And it talked about a magician named Conti, who was a French magician who first performed with a top hat on. And it was uh, the, the hat was a great masterpiece called Whose Hat? Yeah. Um, probably one that no one's ever heard of before, but it was a picture book talking about different kind of hats that people wore. And it talked about a magician wearing a top hat uh, in 1812. And I had never heard of Compton. And I felt a little embarrassed. And I mean, I never heard of this guy. So looked him up. And sure enough, he was a magician who dressed in top hat and tails. Uh, although my later research found that he probably wasn't the first. There might have been others before him. But um, I just started digging into the research and um, got a lot of the old books uh, that, uh, luckily enough, a lot of them are online now because they're hard to get, those old magic books. Uh, much more not necessarily magic tricks, but more magic history books. Yes. And uh, started to study it and then uh, wanted to put it together into an act. And I had no clue how to do it. I did not understand. I had all of this facts and information and effects and tricks and magicians and history. And luckily enough, I relied again on my, my professional writer wife. And she tied this whole thing into this character that we now call the historical conjurer. That is an 18th century early 18, 18th century, early 19th century magician. And that's, and that's a long answer, but um, <laughs> that's how I got into magic history and magic performing in, in time period. Well, I, as a magician professor, I appreciate what you're doing because of the history aspect. So mm -hmm. that is also something that I'm intrigued in. Nick, do you have a question? I hand it off to you, my friend. Yep, that's what I was going to ask, how you came up with the name, The Historical Conjurer, but I guess you kind of answered that a little bit. Um, I, to be honest, I didn't. That was my wife. <laughs> <laughs> there she is, behind the camera. <laughs> right. oh, oh, I highly recommend to anyone who is in performing, get a professional writer to write your stuff. Unless you know what you're doing and you're a professional writer. Absolutely. I knew my weakness was not in writing. I chose her to, to help put my words together, and um, she did all this great research and came up with it. She's a great partner. Well, you're very fortunate. You're very fortunate. I'm very fortunate. <laughs> I do have to ask, how did you guys meet? Oh, this is a fun <laughs> story. It was in college. We were college sweethearts. Oh, um, very wow. funny story. I mean, she, she was actually, I met her through her voice because she was on the college radio station. And I heard her through the radio and called her up uh, as a listener. And wow. from there, she actually invited me on a date. So. Oh, wow. wow. Well, that's pretty romantic. So all you heard 25 years ago this uh, December, right? Yeah. This is how you don't forget what We've been married 25 years ago. <laughs> you better get that right. <laughs> I'll blame it on 2020. It's all been kind of this weird blur. Yes. Right. Right. Yes. 2020 brain is what yes. that is. <laughs> that actually leads me to my next question. You know, we're in a time frame now where you know, the pandemic has probably interfered with a lot of your performing, a lot of your shows, a lot of live stuff. What are you doing to keep busy during this pandemic? Oh, things like this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> things like this. Actually, it did uh, take a big toll on me. I, I typically, March, April, May are my busy times of the year, except for then in the fall again. And um, yeah, come March 13th, I lost all my gigs for the whole summer. I mean, I think it was like with a three or four day period. Just right. everybody canceled, and um, that was very painful. And uh, my wife is also a producer, and so a performer and a dancer. So she lost all of her gigs, both of us, 
within a few days of each other, just lost all of our shows. And um, luckily enough for me, I have a background. My, my training in, in university was in television production. And Ooh. so um, I quickly dusted off my old textbooks and <laughs> thought about how I could turn this performance into a virtual. And, and, and my typical act, um, and this is something that I was always taught in magic, is that I want to involve the audience as much as possible. So in my normal stage act, I am always, there's always an assistant on stage. Uh, there's always an audience member on stage for every single one of my acts, my, my, my performances. And um, that's just kind of the way I developed my act. And so when I sat down in front of the camera, I could not think of any way to do my act without having audience members here. Because um, you need people to hold props and to do things. And um, it just, it, it was beyond my comprehension. So um, I went back to pen and paper. And so for the last, you know, six months, I've been rewriting my act and pretty much, yeah, pretty much everything I'm doing nowadays is all new, all new to my show. And um, so, you know, all new in the last six months. So uh, and that's been fun. So it was actually, it was a great challenge to kind of reinvent and try. And I was also, I use it as a time to try things that I've always wanted to do in my act. And I don't know, Chris, if you're the same way, but when I start performing, I get a little complacent and I get my routine down and I don't, I'm, I'm kind of happy with my act. I don't yeah. want to change it. So, you know, for the last five, six years, I haven't really added anything. I haven't really changed anything. And, um, you know, I might move a little, you know, again, this is talking, you know, Chris will get this, but, you know, I may change <laughs> a slight move or something like, Ooh, yes. I moved my thumb from the top to the bottom. That's <laughs> a big difference in the way I'm holding that. Yes. But, you know, in essence, my act was the same. But this has really forced me to be, you know, think creatively and artistically of, of how to do things in a new medium and a new screen. Well, it's good that you've adjusted. I know a lot of, you know, performers in general haven't adjusted to this. And, and for myself, it was quite difficult, you know. And I know Nick as well. I Nick deals a lot with the comedians. So I, I think they, too, have, you know... Um, difficulty i would say mm -hmm. forming on these under these circumstances so it's good to know that you've adjusted your right. act completely and we're looking forward to it i know i'm having you on my show later on in the week and mm -hmm. i'm looking forward to seeing some magic um which you know which leads me is there anything that you have to share today um professor hey, Chris, why don't we save that to the end of the show well okay yeah, yeah. that's cool I always yeah. love to end my shows at the bang, you know, rather than just driving anything in the middle. But, um, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you, I ask all, the, all of my magicians that come on the show is, do you have any funny stories from your performance? Like, as Chris mentioned, I'm a comedian, so I always love a good laugh. Do you have any funny stories? That, like, oh, so many. Uh, <laughs> and many of them are not necessarily appropriate for television yeah. because they tend, tend to involve people who have had too much alcohol. Uh, uh, oh, like with a kid or something like that, like a funny story about a kid or something like that. <laughs> well, actually, yes, I was I was actually performing at um yeah. So don't talk about the the people who have consumed too much alcohol because they're just yeah. their own problem. But yeah. uh, no, actually, it was very funny. I was at performing at oh uh, Curious Comedy Theater here in Portland. I think Chris, I think did you perform there too? Um, no, I I believe there was one. Well, you know what? Where's in Portland? Yes. I think I was. Yes, Portland. Yes, I was there. I'm sorry. Yeah, I thought we had performed a month 
a month apart, but uh, yeah. the yeah. Uh, one of the children in the audience had come up. I do a part of my I I like the philosophy of always giving a gift to my audience members um, as a thank you for them coming up here because one of the challenges we have as magicians is um, there's also some people are a little hesitant to come on stage when a magician asks you on stage because they sometimes they, you are the butt of their jokes as a volunteer. Mm -hmm. And I personally don't, my personal philosophy is I don't like that kind of approach because I think it puts kind of a, a relationship, a strain between the relationship of a, of a performer and an, of an audience if you're going to make fun of someone. I know comedians have this issue all the time because mm -hmm. you don't want them to be made fun of. But um, so the way that I break that ice is I often will give a gift to my audience members. And um, one of my demonstrations is actually uh, a performance of something that was done back in the 18th century. Um, it's an homage to a transformation of a seed into a flower. And so um, the, the point at which I do, I have this audience member on stage and I give the little uh, girl, a, a, it's just a seed, you know, a tiny little flower seed. And I say, I have a gift for you. And she's kind of excited. And I hand her the flower seed and she looks at it and looks at me and goes, kind of small, isn't it? And <laughs> I had no reaction. I wish I was fast thinking. He said, well, I mean, of course, I transformed it into the you know beautiful rose and had it at door and she smiled and loved it. But I just thought that was charmingly innocent. And I said, yes. You know, afterwards, I went and approached her. I said, see? Small gifts eventually turn big, so don't worry about it. You know, you had a small seed and it turned large, but I thought yeah. that was that's great. Hey, my life motto is great things come in small packages. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly what I exactly what I was thinking. Like just yeah. just a little girl, you'll see you something mm -hmm. wonderful. Yes, yeah, she was very thankful for that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Now going off of um comedy stories, do you have any feel-good stories? Like anyone that's like touched your heart on a performance or like you've talked to afterwards that said like, you know what? I was having a really bad day because X, Y, and Z. I came to your show and just forgot everything. Something like that. There's countless stories um, like that. Like some of the ones that I remember, I remember when I was performing in the, um, in the UK for the, uh, the Kent society um, of Jane Austen. It was the Kent, Kent Jane Austen society branch. And mm -hmm. um, one of the ladies there, um, Technically, she wasn't a lady. She was just a, a, a woman. I have to be careful because there actually was a lord and lady, apparently, in the audience. Someone said, oh, you know, lord. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yes. And I went, oh, I guess that's a big deal. But one of the, the <laughs> one of the audience members um, came up to me, approached me, and said that her, I think it was her great-grandfather, was a magician. Um, and she just loved seeing me perform. And I, I wish I, sh I wrote down the name because it was actually someone, it was a local famous magician that she was uh, akin to. And um, she said, just seeing you perform brought back all of these memories oh, wow. of watching my grandfather perform. And um, those are the types of stories I tend to get. I don't know why. I always get these ones where there are people thinking of memories of their family members or of their you know, parents or dads or whatever it was that I may, maybe the history element. I think I yeah. might spark that little bit of their thinking of their past. And um, I'm, I'm assuming that their grandfather didn't perform like this. But maybe, I don't know how old grandpa was. Um, maybe, it could be. But um, yeah, so that was, those are the kind of stories that I hear all the time. I love, I love to get that connection. I love when people you know, they remember the history part of it. They have their past. Yes. Yeah. Yes, you should turn that into a mentalism trick of some sort. Like, was your grandfather or a relative a magician by chance? 
for them going. Yes. You do that. Well, I have to be very careful. So I'm very cautious on the way I pick my effects um, because I want to stick period appropriate things that would have been done in my time period. And um, mentalism was really in its infancy, really, 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 really small. So um, as much as I love performing mentalism tricks, I don't really do many in my act um, just because I gonna have to be very careful about it. And that had to do with the time period. You have back then uh, in the 18th century, if you did like mind things, eh, you're right on that borderline of witchcraft. Yeah. And they'd be like, yeah, you know, you got to be careful on how you do those kind of things. And um, the, the way that they performed the big trick back then was a second sight routine where it was a husband and wife. And, you know, the husband would walk the audience and find a, a pocket watch to the wife. I, wife would identify the inscription on it or something like that um, without any communication. They would just do it through mental communication. At least that's what they said. And that was one of the very first mentalism tricks ever performed. And um, even then, that was a little bit edgy on on borderline was that you know spirits or was that magic and um what they actually would pass it off as and what most of the magicians in that time period and the reason why i'm a historical conjurer not a historical magician is because the magicians started calling themselves conjurers we jettisoned the name magician in the 18 late 18th, 18th century because magician was aligned with the negative witchcraft side oh. as well as the thieves and that kind of stuff. It, it was taking on a, actually, as I say in my performance, there's a, a definition of Encyclopedia Diderot of 1790s that describes a magician as an odious sort, someone to be avoided at all costs. So um, magicians dropped the name magicians and became conjurers. And we, we, we primarily focused on science. So we were displaying scientific uh, evolution. And so that's the mentalism that they did then was passed off as a science experiment, that they were able to do scientific um, mental distribution, you know, back and forth transmissions, I guess you call it. Mm -hmm. So it was a very fine line they were running right there because the church was beginning to lose its power, but you didn't want to push it on yeah. that because you could still have a little bit of backlash here and there. But if you, as long as you embrace the science side and said, oh, this is science, pretty yeah. much could do a regular magic act. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how they kind of got away with it, was just calling it science and they also did display scientific things um you know things like electricity and magnetism um and uh, vacuum pumps and other things like that which were new to the time period and people hadn't seen them so to see someone make electric sparks uh was pretty impressive to them so that was actually magic uh in the time period as well which which is a good leeway i was looking at your your site do now i saw something on the electrostatic like you have a device on there that you make could you yes. explain that you so you make different products or I devices do. i make props i mean <laughs> majority of my act i cannot go to the local magic store and ask them to buy me a, a, a you know a vacuum pump generator they just don't have those at murphy's <laughs> magic as right. much as i've tried um <laughs> so i i have to end up making a lot of my own props um and, and i do not I, I am not a great builder. I, those things take me forever to do. There's a lot of trial and error um, because I am not. I don't have this woodcraft background or any kind of science background, so uh, I stumble through them. But yes, I do um, have part of my normal act uh, involves a static electric generator, which um, is called a a modern version of it's called the Wimshurst machine. But back then it was just called the static electric generator. 
And it's a, basically a, a big spark machine that makes sparks. Unfortunately, I can't do it um, in Convina <laughs> because, well, I'm not sure how the sparks work with the camera either um, because it does create a lot of static electricity, but um, because it requires a, an assistant. I have to have an audience member to, they run the machine while oh, I do the rest of the effects. So um, it's, it's a great fun machine. And actually what I do usually after my act is uh, the audience often just wants to come and play with it because they yeah. want to make sparks. Um, and, and all it is, the scientific discovery, all it is is how, you know, when you walk on the carpet, you get that electric charge and you shock yourself when you touch metal. Right. That's all it is. It's just doing it right there. So it has two spinning glass discs that generate the static electricity and then they go into laden jars and then when they they with enough power uh, saved up the laden jar they arc across and make a spark and mm. so uh, yeah. that's always fun and then i i love it when i perform for kids because then the kids love to go and touch the spark for some weird <laughs> reason they want to shock themselves and i don't understand that one but <laughs> i was doing a, a, a middle yeah. school party and uh, they all lined up and held hands and wanted to see how far down the line they could shock themselves. <laughs> <laughs> I see, love that. Yeah, you just stand there over there like, okay then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, some of them, the challenge they did not follow is all of them were challenging each other to put their tongue in it. And <laughs> I said, I don't want to do that. Right, right. You don't want another version of the Christmas story. Yeah. You know? Yes. I appreciate that because, uh, Nick, if you haven't seen his site, I would suggest, you know, some of the viewers to really look. Yes. What is the site, by the way? It's historicalconjurer.com. Am I right? Um, yeah. Correct. Yeah. And I spell so, conjurer with an E-R at the end because okay. there is also O-R. You can uh, both are correct. There's nothing wrong with either, but I do E-R, although O-R will work if you do historical conjurer O-R. B-O-N-J-U-R-E-R, correct? Yes. Yes. All right. Yeah, we could put that in the chat. And I I think, too, you know, you also have some period-accurate uh, cards in there, which I was fascinated in, you know. Yes. I always perform with these. These are my – well, not this exact deck. I have – I'm a magician. I have thousands of decks of cards <laughs> scattered around the house. You know what that's like. You know, magicians, <laughs> we have decks. Of, look, I think I have – right here, I just have – Three decks alone. <laughs> so here's my modern decks and these. So no. yes, I um I do perform uh, using 18th century playing cards. They're slightly different than our modern cards. They're um, blank back. The the um the challenge for these and Chris, you'll appreciate them, is that they're just on regular cardboard. So or paper paperboard. So there are uh, when I first developed this act, there are some some effects that are very very hard to do with these um, because yeah. you can't do a lot of the stuff that you would normally do with playing right. cards. Um, I, I'm sneaking around some terms, but trust me, it makes it harder. Well, and I'll okay. explain to you why. Most modern decks have, here, let me see if I have a modern deck. Most of our modern decks have this, a plastic coating on them. Not, it's not really a coating, but it allows the cards to flow freely so yeah. that we can do things like, um, version, but we can do things like fans very easily. Very easy to show a fan yeah. of cards. But when you're using cardboard, um, fans are I can't do a fan with these. I just I just can't. And that's okay, that's the best fan I can get out of these. Um they don't slide, they don't have that air, what do you call that airfoil, I guess they call it. The air yes. you know, here you go. There's a great fan right there. Um so there are some definite challenges which limit what I can do with these playing cards. And um 
but they are fun because they're period appropriate and right. period appropriate. Mm -hmm. and, stick with the act. and do you make those too or is is that something that i don't um i source mine from colonial williamsburg which is oh. the um big reenactment place in virginia I see. and they make them i like theirs because they actually i don't have them up here but um they put the stamp on them the original stamp from like the stamp act that yeah. we all know of here in, in america um they actually put the seal on them because early on in the 18th century um, in order to, there was no playing cards printed in the United States. They were all printed overseas by law, by order of the law, of the crown. And so all playing cards had to be imported. And the only way you could get them imported is if you had the stamp from that you paid tax on them. And so the ones from Colonial Rinsburg, the one that I sell, have the actual stamp still on it, a reproduction, obviously, but a reproduction stamp on it. So um, it's a fun learning tool. So when people get them like, oh yeah, I've got my, I paid my tax on my cards to show yeah. that you paid your tax on your cards. And so um, and of course, playing cards back in the 18th century are very different than playing cards today because everybody had playing cards. It was an everyday item. Uh, it was, you know, normally after dinner, people would withdraw to the card room and or drawing room, as they called it, and they would play cards. That's just that was normal everyday life. They would go from dinner or supper or whatever they called it to to their card games. And so playing cards were some of those things that just people do. And um, magicians use them because just like we do now, everyday items, we love to use objects that people are used to. And yeah. um, playing cards, one of those things. And, you know, they, they, the, the games have changed over the years. And so the cards, um, which I've had to learn. But, you know, a lot of the things like they're, they're playing cards, you know, they had no numbers on them. It was just the, 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 mm. yeah. the number of all the pictures. Um, also, their royalty cards were different than ours because they would always depict their lords and ladies and royalty of their, you know, their, their place. So it would be, these yeah. I think are French, I believe. Are these French? No, these are English. So this would be, you know, I guess this is King George or whoever yeah. wanted to. Um, so those are the, the types of things that would be different. So if you went to France, their royalty cards would be different. They have a different right. picture on them, a different depiction, because you would have the French lords and ladies and royalty on their, their cards. Although, I mean, you can't really tell who this is anyway. It just looks like... <laughs> No, that's wonderful. There's, there's the queen. There she is. She looks just... I'm sure she's looking like that. Yeah. <laughs> that's wonderful. <laughs> now, I want to ask you some questions that I always ask my buddies. I don't call them guests or friends. I call them buddies <laughs> on this show. The first one is I'm running this campaign called A Month of Positivity. You know... We're in a month, we just dealt with an election, we're in a pandemic, you know. I tell all my friends, you walk up to somebody and say hello, and the first thing that you're greeted with is a profanity, you know what I mean? Like, just those simple things. How can we be more positive during this month, in your own words? I am often described as a positive person anyway. Um, <laughs> I, I think I am the ultimate optimist, always looking at the glass as half Cool. And mm -hmm. um, this last eight, nine months has been very challenging. <laughs> That's for sure. And I, and I know it's very jarring, but I think in my, my partner, my wife and I have been talking about this all the time. Um, you know, it's the, the quote from, from Nemo, from Finding Nemo. Um, just keep swimming. And, um, you know, just keep swimming. And, and that's what we've been doing. That's why we've been performing. Um, that's why we've been, you know, rewriting our acts. And, you know, we've, we've turned our whole... You know, what is this, our dining room? We don't call it dining room anymore. This is now called the studio. 
We've turned our dining room into a studio permanently. And, um, you know, that just keep swimming, just keep trying, keep doing things, um, you know, keep active. It, it really does help to keep that positive attitude. Um, even when things aren't great, you know, there is always great things that come out of it. And I know <laughs> this is what's amazing is that we have met so many fun people um, that we would never have met um, yeah. through Zoom, through Skype, through um, every, I can start naming all the platforms. All the platforms we performed on, there's more platforms I can even think of. Um, that, you know, six months ago, I didn't even know existed. But we met people around the globe, um, all over the place. Um, you know, Australia and UK and Poland and um, Paris and, you know, New York and all over that, you know, normally I wouldn't be performing for and I wouldn't get to meet. And a lot of them now that we're talking to on a regular basis and it's kind of fun to meet all these new people. And I guess that's the silver lining. So always look for that kind of that silver lining. There's going to be great things that come out of it. Um, and there's going to be great people you're going to meet. And hopefully when things get back to normal for us again, we can go and meet these people in person and, and actually have a chance to make some of these relationships, you know, and, 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 and real life, I guess we call them. But uh, you know, it's just a, it, that keeping that positivity, keeping that, um, you know, looking for the brighter side, you know, that those silver lining kind of things, there are positives that can come out of almost any situation. I think any situation. So just keep that positive attitude yourself. And, um, you know, I think it rubs off on other people too. Nice. Well Quick follow-up question. Who's your favorite uh, Disney character? Oh gosh, that's a hard one. <laughs> uh, now, hold on. <laughs> Do we count um, actual Disney characters? Oh, you're going to go get it, aren't you? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Can you go get my autograph picture? Oh, <laughs> oh boy. Well, so yeah. it depends on how you describe Disney character because oh, um, you know there's the new generation that Disney has bought like Star Wars. Yeah, that's technically yeah. a Disney character now. Yeah. So let's go with the classic Disney, like when you know before like the whole thing, like Lilo and Stitch to like Lion King, you know it's, stuff like that. It's been a while, but Disney has owned. Muppets for a while. Yes. And I do have my my oh, hero. <laughs> wow. Look at so that. <laughs> I've got an autograph picture from Gonzo, which is a great story because when I was in Los Angeles working, I worked at a TV station in Los Angeles, um, KTLA, and we would often have celebrity guests come through. When you're in a lot when you're in Hollywood, they all come through just to do their interviews. And everybody else in the world I really didn't care about. I mean, there were great, you know, JT, Jim Carrey, you know, all the different stars, whatever. Um, you know, it was fine. Like, yeah, okay, great. You know, here's your whatever. And, um, you know, I, I was a, you know, a segment producer at the time. So you'd always kind of chum them up and go, oh, great, here's the green room. Here's your makeup. And, you know, you kind of talk to them. Some of them were nice. Some of them were a little nutty. Um, and then when Gonzo came on the show, he's the only person in the years I was there for the decade I was at the TV station that I ever wanted to get an autograph from. I never oh, got the autograph. So. Um, that was Gonzo a nice was, treat. That's a nice treat. <laughs> my hero. <laughs> and yes, as I think as I have to read the, the uh, as, as the inscription says, um, with good intentions from your silver screen role model, Gonzo. So that's who I really achieved to be as Gonzo in all of my performances. <laughs> and I'm almost there with the same shirt. You see, and I have a hat on. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> that reminds me of my favorite Muppet movie, Muppets from Outer Space. Yes. Like you were saying earlier with the electricity, with the electricity, like how the kid, you know, the part where he gets electrocuted and then goes up yeah. to it. But he, with the cards, 
He goes up to Rizzo with the cards, and Rizzo's got the greatest hand up. He's like, I'm going to win this thing. It's going to be easier. And then he gets electrocuted. The cards get on fire, and he loses to a pair of twos. So, That's funny. Yes. I'm just fine, Zap. <laughs> yes. My, Chris, my, have a favorite Disney, well, my favorite Muppets movie is the um, is Christmas Carol. Muppets Christmas Carol. Oh, yes. So, Yes. There you there go. Is, there's yeah. Gonzo in time period. I didn't think about that. Gonzo <laughs> was in. Oh, you got to get a picture of that. You know. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I need. Yes. Gonzo with his top hat. Yes. I'm always a sucker for Treasure Island. That's always a good one. That's a great. Yes. Yes. That's a really and I think Outer Space makes me laugh the most. You know. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So, are those considered Disney films? I don't know if those are Disney films or not. I, I, they're Jim Henson, but yeah, close enough. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So, another question I always ask my buddies that come on the show is if you could have our audience donate to one charity of your choice, what would it be and why? Oh, boy, there's so many of them out there. I think for, for right now, because of what's going on in the time period, um, the Die Vernon Foundation. Mm-hmm. Is a uh, Di Vernon for those who are not magicians um, was a, a magician also known as the professor um, who spent much time at the Magic Castle, and um, Di Vernon Foundation is a a group that raises money for other artists for magicians, um, and most of the time it tends up tends going to younger magicians who are beginning to learn the art. So um, if you don't know, magic is an expensive art form. Um, <laughs> Very, Chris, you'll probably attest to that. I mean, um, magic effects are not, yeah, you would think it's only, you know, a dollar to go buy a deck of cards, but no, 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 no. We make sure we charge $45 for a deck of cards as magicians. So, so um, not a cheap, yeah, not a cheap art form at all. And um, so for a lot of the kids who are starting out and, and especially ones who come from, you know, lower income families, it's very hard to get into um, making some of these investments in, in the art form. So, Die Vernon Foundation um, gives money to, to you know starting up magicians, new ones, as well as nowadays they've been doing um, relief grants to magicians. And so uh, right. folks who are struggling financially can apply for foundation grants. And um, the Die Vernon Foundation, and Die is spelled D-A-I. Yes. Um, and it's a strange spelling, but yeah, Die Vernon Foundation, they, um, they're doing a lot of COVID-19 relief grants right now for, for magicians and um, they they're they're affiliated still with the magic castle uh in los angeles um and so that's kind of the the direction there that i i, I like to you know nice. i like to get their name out there and spread that one because i think that's a great yeah. a great opportunity there's been a, actually a lot of foundation another one i've been working with is artist relief fund which has been a group that's been um helping artists out and giving grants to artists that are struggling not just magicians but all artists who are struggling right mm-hmm. now because um, it's been challenging for artists when you obviously when you can't perform, when you, you can't, you know, entertain or even do art gallery displays or right. if you're a dancer, you can't you know, perform on stage. You know, it's kind of hard to do that. Uh, we're lucky because magic still translates through this you know, video form, but not all art forms do. And right. so um, a lot of those artists are, are struggling um, to, to survive. And there's been some great groups out there that have been you know, keeping those alive, Artists Relief and High Vernon and others like that. Beautiful, beautiful. I definitely know what you mean about the financial struggles because I used to be a professional clown, as my uh, good buddy here 
is also a professional clown. And we know the struggle because it's like a simple prop. You go to like a clown convention and spend $160 on all this material that you're going to use one time. <laughs> and then you're in your closet and you're going to sell it at your local clown alley for 10 bucks later, you know? Yeah. Well, I understand that. I mean, you know, as you know, Professor, this, you know, this room is filled with expensive, you know, through just <laughs> of just accumulation of things that I don't need. And, you know, it, it, it's just that's just the way it is. I mean, you know, um, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Now I got to ask both of you, what do your wives think when you bring all of this stuff on? What are your wives thinking immediately? Well, I think the professor has, you know, a good answer for that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so it's very true. I mean, you, but I think some of it is just like any any artist. I mean, I guess our props are just bigger. We have to figure out what works for us as artists, as performers, and so we have to test all of these things. I mean, we we do need to go and buy those props that you know you're probably never going to use, but you want to know how, especially in magic, we need to know how it's done. And I don't know if the public knows this, but we don't tell each other, there's an old joke that we say in magic is that magicians don't give away their secrets, they sell them. Right. And that's actually what we do. That's how magicians make their money when they come up with a new method is they sell it. And if you wanna find out the method behind it, the only way you do it is to be able to pay for it, which is great because you need to pay for the, the intellectual property of that. And, and then you end up with a closet or room or house full yeah. of props you're never going to use. Yeah. <laughs> then they're done that well said well said yes chris do you have any more questions for the professor before we ask the ultimate buddy cast buddy question well you know what no i don't but i just wanted to say that this has been quite the pleasure to meet you yes. professor dr and just yes. an educational um talk with you and it's been enlightening and you know just on the subject and i truly appreciate your time Yes, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about my new style. Yes. <laughs> but now, Professor, we're going to ask you what we call the ultimate buddy cast buddy question. Are you ready for this? Yes. What is your advice to anyone out there who wants to be a magician? Uh, I would say study. Study, study, study. Read books. Read everything you can. Um, my my half of my closet is filled with magic props and the rest of my area is filled with books, um, books and videos and magazines. And, um, so much knowledge and information is contained in those books that I'll never know it all. I'll never know all of them, but it's certainly a great resource when someone, you know, calls me or asks me to, to, how do you do something? I can go and find at least five or six different methods to do it for them. And, um, I do a lot of magic consulting and, you know, that's, well, a great way of, of, of learning that is to be able to uh, to to study that. And then beyond just studying in books, there's also watching other magicians. Go and see other performers uh, perform. Uh, I know this is something they talk about in, in writing that, you know, you need to read 10,000 books in order to write one book. And it's kind of the same thing with magic, I think, to go and see other magicians, not to copy them. You're not trying to mimic them. You're not trying to repeat what they're doing. But just to see what works with audiences, what doesn't work with audiences, styles and characteristics, and um, to see you know what others are doing out there um, throughout your career, I think to see more and more and more and more magicians, see as many as you possibly can, 
And um, it's a great way to understand how the art works and what works and what doesn't work. Um, and again, don't steal from other magicians. You don't want to go and copy someone else's act, but you can certainly be inspired by them and see what mm -hmm. they do and say, hey, this is a great, you know, way to perform magic or, you know, those great characters or um, ideas. I know that, uh, you know, comedians do that a lot as well to go see other comedians. Yeah. It also helps to support the community. Um, you mm -hmm. want to support other magicians and, and I mean, this is our, our case is magician, but you want to support other artists and be out there and say, hey, I enjoy what you're doing. Um, you know, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. And um, there's there's not enough magicians out there in the world. There's not enough comedians out there in the world. There's not enough artists out there in the world. So try it out. Um, you know, there's we're we're so lucky and I, that right now because of the availability of resources, you know, 100 years ago, you had to struggle to find a magic book. And it was one of those secrets that you could not even find. Nowadays, they're everywhere. You know, they're in the library. They're online. There's, you know, PDF resources. If you can't even check out a book, you can get them online. They're, they're available. You can purchase one for fairly cheap as a PDF and read it on your Kindle or whatever. Um, so there's lots of those resources. Plus, nowadays, there's a lot of magicians who will be mentors for you over Zoom or over Skype or, you know, other virtual ways. So you can get a, a, a magician mentor. And um, I think that's a great idea. That that was a great resource for me, too, is a lot of these magicians who were nice enough to help me out when I was starting and taught me better. I don't want to say better ways. Uh, helped me perfect the ways that I was performing. Is that an okay way? Yeah. I don't want to say better because there is no better or worse way to perform magic. It's just there's ways that work better with your character or that help develop what you are. And um, some of it was not even necessarily pieces of advice. It was just them being friendly to me yeah. and that was inspirational to me and um that was one of those great things and i have to thank the portland magic community up here in portland oregon um the portland society of magicians and the society of american magicians uh two portland clubs they were very very instrumental in just encouraging me pushing me along so it's great to know other artists support other artists and um you know i think that can definitely help in magic it's Magic is challenging because a lot of magicians are singular performers that so we tend to be on stage by ourselves. And so it can kind of, it can kind of be lonely um, yeah. after a while because you're not with a troupe. You know, my wife has a couple of dance troupes she's with. So she gets to be with her little, you know, her friends. Um, mm -hmm. I should say, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're all of her partners and all of her performing partners, other artists, but magicians, we don't, we tend to be on stage by ourselves. And so, um, community is great when you can work with other magicians and talk to other magicians and meet them. And nowadays, because of the internet, that makes it even even easier because you yeah. can meet magicians all around the globe and um, talk to other performers. I, yeah. I keep going back towards being magicians and artists because I think magicians um, and artists we we are we are artists. Magicians are a type of artists, and so um, it's just good to support each other. One hundred percent, and you said it right. You know, internet helps us meet other people. I mean, what, Chris? You're in California. So you're in Oregon, correct? Yep, Portland, Oregon. And I'm in Pennsylvania, and we're sharing the same screen. <laughs> we're in different time zones right now, and we're chatting like we're just in a conference room together, you know? Right. Exactly. Yes. So now, you know how we have to end every show, Chris, with that we have a magician on? Absolutely. I think we need a demonstration. I'm going to give you the floor, if that's okay. And would you be willing to give us a little demonstration? Be my pleasure. Alrighty. The floor is yours. Well, greetings and salutations to you all. My name 
is Professor D.R. Schreiber, professor of natural philosophy, presenter of experimental conjuring, and exhibitor of ledger domain. I come to you today from the 18th century, a time when conjurers first performed in legitimate theaters. You see, prior to this time period, we would be con men or thieves, street performers perhaps, someone that you probably would not want to perform with or be around. But by the 18th century, we became gentlemen. We took our acts inside. And unfortunately right now, we're in quarantine. Yes, here in the 18th century, we have yellow fever about. So we are all staying inside. Not performing in the theaters, but I have been keeping myself busy. I, I'm often asked, what do we do as conjurers to keep ourselves entertained, to keep your mind flowing? And one of the great things to do, of course, is to read. I'm sure all of you in the modern age read all the time. You're probably scrolling through your reading, but we use books. And one of my biggest challenges is trying to pick a good book, something that I like to read, and I, I can never pick a book. So I call upon the magical spirits to help me make my selection, allow me to demonstrate. All we need to do is give a quick ring and say, spirits, send me a book. And you'll see the spirits send a couple of selections. And we've got one book they sent me. Ah, this one is written in French. I do not read French. Not really a great selection for that one, but thank you, spirits. They can't get everything right every time. Uh, this one, oh, much better. The Complete Works of Mark Twain. That one I can read. I'll read this one a little later on. That is one way that we, we pick uh, books. Uh, other things that we do, play games, of course. We've already talked about playing games and playing cards. And uh, one of the most popular games here in the 18th century is a game we call Whist. It's a, uh, a game of, of chance, which, well, fortunes have been won and lost playing whist. And um, I have a difficulty also here that I'm often not invited to play whist. Um, a lot of people don't want to play with a magician. I'll demonstrate why. Um, allow me, and actually I should show you, I, we've already talked about the 18th century playing cards, but these are slightly different than your modern cards. Um, of course, we still have the clubs and the hearts and... Well, there's diamonds in here too and spades as well. So all of those are the same. The big difference, of course, is there are no numbers on there, no pips, because our game of whist doesn't require you to, to look at the pips, of course, and most people can't count, so they just, I mean, they can't read, so they just count one, two, and they know that's two of, two of spades. But um, let me quick, give you a quick demonstration here of the reason why I'm never invited to play whist. Um, I'll just flip through the cards like this and we'll give a quick stop. Take a look at that card right there. That'll be your card. Can you see that, Nick? Oh, I'll make sure I'm on, on camera there. Yes, good. My wife's telling me, turn it this way a little bit. There. <laughs> you can see the playing card there. We'll put it right back in the middle of the deck. Remember your card there so you can see that again when hopefully things happen. What? Oh, yes. So um, let's just cut the cards. We'll make sure that we lose your card deep within the middle somewhere here. I'm getting signals that I need to lift my cards up. Sorry. How's that better? Okay, good. Now you can see it? Good. Uh, is that your card on the bottom? Nope. Nope. Good, good, good. Is this your card right here on the top? Nope. Nope. Good. So your card is somewhere between the top and the bottom, a place that we call in the 18th century the middle. 
<laughs> probably call it that also in the modern day too. But uh, <laughs> quick snap, watch what happens. Your card appears on the top of the deck. <laughs> Bravo. That's the same reaction I get normally. Um, so uh, put your card right back. Actually, let's put your card right in the middle. Slide it right here, deep in the deck. Another snap. There's your card again back on top. <laughs> that is the reason I am not invited to play whist with anyone. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Other things that I do. Oh, oh, oh yes, of course. We love to travel in the 18th century. And one of the things that we travel on mostly is sailing ships. And sailing ships, of course, have sailors aboard. They have masts and they have rope. Lots and lots of rope. And, and most magicians, we love performing with rope. And um, I was on a recent voyage and I decided to show a little demonstration to the sailors. I took one of their ropes, gave it a quick snip. A piece of advice, if you're ever on a sailing ship, don't cut the ropes. Sailors don't like it when you cut their ropes. <laughs> no, they don't. I don't know why. I'm not a sailor, but I decided I should amend things here to try to appease the sailors. So I took their rope, tied a hearty knot there, said, don't worry, good as new. <laughs> the sailors did not believe that that would hold in a strong gale. I said, don't worry, though. A little magic. <laughs> and the rope is written. What? To <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> I have to be careful. My puppy likes to steal the... Okay, hold on. I have to pick this up. <laughs> I have to pick this up. She ate one of those last week. Oh, so, those, those, those don't find out. Um, what else? Oh, yes. Can I show you my little scientific demonstration that we're working on? 100%. Absolutely. So this is something that I've been playing with here now in the 18th century. This is, in fact, a vacuum chamber. Now, uh, this is not a new invention in the 18th century. This has actually been around since the 17th century. But we have made some new strides and in, in innovations in what it can do. We've learned that sound reacts differently inside of a vacuum chamber. Now, what this is, is this is a glass chamber with this machine, which is a vacuum pump. It extracts all of the ether, or what you might call air, out of the vacuum pump and creating special conditions. What we've learned is that sound does act differently. We know here in our modern age that when you ring a bell, it makes noise, right? Of course, but when you put a bell into the vacuum chamber, Something fascinating happens. Watch. Extract all of the air out of our chamber. Now, no matter how hard I ring, no sound will come out of the bell because we have removed all of the sound from the bell using our vacuum chamber. Very interesting. You can try this at home, take your own vacuum chamber and extract the sound from your bell. Now, we cannot leave it this way. Otherwise, I would not be able to use my bell again. So, quick snap. And the bell is <laughs> yes. Wonderful. Those are the types of inventions Bravo. that we do. Bravo.
That was amazing. I like the bell trick. That was awesome. <laughs> yes. All righty. Chris, do you have any any final thoughts? I, don't, I, I am I am astonished and I am I just appreciate the art and the way you present your magic, Professor DR, and I am looking forward to seeing more, especially live. It you know, you bring you you allow us to go back in time and to see how magic was being performed, and I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> It is entertaining. I, yeah. I have to take some creative license because I don't know exactly how they did things back then. Um, you know, because the, the method wasn't written down. We don't have those instruction manuals, but um, it's fun to be able to toy with it anyway. And Absolutely. of course, it's also fun to be able to toy with the modern audience, you know, back and forth. Yes. Of, am I, when am I in period and not? Because obviously, <laughs> I'm not in the time period, but, but it's it fun anyway. Yeah, but it definitely sparks the imagination. And I think that's, you know, the most important thing. And mine was. Mm -hmm. I, I really appreciated that. Yes. 100. Now, I usually leave, before I leave, I usually um, give a toast. Because I like to do that. Because it's a polite thing to do. But mm. I don't have a glass. But let me show you one other demonstration. This is something that I do here. I have a, a, a trusty tavern keep around the corner who delivers me drinks very quickly. So if you allow me a moment, I'll just send him a quick note oh, here. Absolutely. Let me order up my, my drink. Now, I'm sure in the modern age, you have a much faster way to get your food delivered. But we don't have that here in the 18th century. So we have to do something a little bit different. Uh, let me just send my drink order over to him. Perfect. Give him a moment. Oh, perfect. Good. Oh, <laughs> a little bit fallen over, but that fell over, but that's okay. Uh, let's see what he sent me. Hmm. Earl Grey. Just the way I like it. <laughs> Cheers. 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 <laughs> Thank you so much for being a buddy here on Buddy Cast. It was a pleasure. It was so much fun. Thank you, Chris, for being my co-host today. We had some amazing questions. Thank you to all of our buddies out there. For all of you out there, this is my new buddy, Professor D.R. Schreiber, and of course, my lovely assistant co-host, <laughs> Karen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Stick around, Professor. We'll chat for a little bit afterwards. Thank you so much. Yes. But for all my buddies out there, just remember, as I tell everyone on BuddyCast at the end, go be someone's buddy today. We'll catch you next time here on BuddyCast. Well, the days are going fast. Buddy, buddy, we've got to make them last. Buddy, buddy, before they've all gone past. Buddy, buddy, tune in to BuddyCast. Don't be lying to make it, buddy, here on BuddyCast.